Drew Balper and the team of Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a writer for Baseball America. He's a writer for Baseball America. Covers college baseball for them almost exclusively. His name is Aaron Fitt. And I wanted to say this. I want to say that Aaron Fitt is a pleasure, uh, was a pleasure to speak with. And this is a time of year when especially a lot of people in the uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line, I guess it was, are contending, and maybe south of the Mason-Dixon line actually, are contending with winter. Uh, Aaron Fitt covers college baseball. The season f- for college baseball has begun. So there's actually baseball being played. The pastime, in this case, is very relevant. It's going on. And Aaron Fitt, uh, he brings a uh, an enthusiasm with him, I'm going to say, that's contagious. Uh, uh, one hopes that uh, he doesn't bring anything else with him that's contagious, but his enthusiasm is fantastic. So we talk about college baseball. We talk about how he got to, to, to that point, writing for it. And we talk about this situation that happened with the Phillies recently, uh, where they essentially uh, sold out uh, two of the draft picks uh, from uh, 2013 who did sign with them, sold them out uh, as players who had uh, acquired agents, essentially, before. And we'll get to that. It's a new, it's a new story. It's a relevant news story. Anyway, uh, like I say, this is, it was a real pleasure to talk with Aaron Fitt. He's the guest on this, on this uh, edition of the, the podcast. The podcast is Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Caveats, uh, as it were. Uh, one of them is that um, uh, if I ask anything that you don't want to answer, then you can just tell me to shove it. <laughs> All right. Okay. And the other thing is, um, the, I live in my I live in France for some reason, um, and because I do that, <laughs> my internet stops sometimes, uh, but it comes okay. right back. So if uh, if I lose you, then I will call you right back. Good to know that uh, the internet in, in France is not to be trusted. Yeah, no, no, don't, no, don't trust, don't trust it. It, uh, yeah, that's how it is. So let me ask you first. Um, I'm curious about this. Where, where are you right now? I'm in North Carolina. I, I was uh, last three years out in California, uh, but just moved back here to the uh, Raleigh Durham area in in October. Okay, all right. So now, listen. I actually did, I would say, a semi-exhaustive study. Uh, for the pages of Not Graphs last year, which is the ridiculous younger brother of Fangraphs. And I was trying to identify the best places to live in terms of watching minor league baseball. Um, and you will probably not be surprised to learn that Raleigh Durham, the Raleigh Durham area is, is among them um, because you have access yeah. to some great leagues there. Tell me about, because you are the master of uh you of college baseball tell me how it is for college baseball it's pretty good you know i mean i i don't think it's for me i don't think it's as good as california as far as uh, a home base because in california first of all the, the weather is, is just so perfect all the time and um you know you always the first six weeks of the season you've got so many great teams from all around the country come out there so you can see a lot of the country without having to travel as much which is useful um and you know within I think within an hour and a half radius from where I lived in, in South Orange County, um, you know, you had San Diego and LA and I think there were like 13 Division One teams and a lot of them were, were darn good programs. So, um, you know, for me, I think California is hard to beat 
as a college baseball writer. But but North Carolina is is uh, is, is up there. I mean, you know, certainly here in the triangle, we've got uh, three teams that are all close with with Duke, North Carolina, and NC State, um, and two of those uh, were in Omaha last year, which is nice. And um, the, you know, this area is really taking off as far as interest in college baseball. Um, you know, each of the last two years, Duke and NC State have played in the ACC tournament and uh, drawn record crowds for the state. I mean, I think the previous uh, biggest crowd for a college baseball game here in, in the state of North Carolina was like 6,000-something. And then in Greensboro two years ago, they drew like 10,000. And then last year in Durham, they drew like 11,000. So people are really getting into it, which makes it a lot of fun. Um, and you've got this particular year is probably the, the best year you could possibly be in North Carolina because we got three of the, the best, you know, five prospects for the draft right here in our backyard with Carlos Rudon and Trey Turner at NC State and then Jeff Hoffman at East Carolina. Um, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of good teams in the state. Mid-majors like UNC Wilmington and Western Carolina and Elon, Appalachian State. I mean, a lot of those are good programs that have been pretty consistent. So, um, it's, it's really not a bad place to be based. Yeah, actually, I, um, well, and besides that, I think I remember writing some, oh man, some embarrassing, like the first things I wrote, it might have been at Fangraphs, it might have even been at Harbaugh Times. I was, I tried, I was writing about some Cape League guys who were playing, let's say, I was, I saw the Cape League Championship. It was like, uh, Katuit and one of the other teams and, uh, some guys from Coastal Carolina or whatever were playing there. I think that one of them ended up in, uh, you know, was playing in like uh, whatever the the team from Traverse City is right now, whatever that indie league is. Mm. But um, yeah, but but the Coastal Carolina is another team. They're obviously, they're in one of the Carolinas. It has the word Carolina right in it. Yeah, and you know, South Carolina is a great college baseball state with with Coastal down there and College Charleston, and of course South Carolina and Clemson. You know, two really good programs, and, and those people are those people are baseball crazy down in that state. I mean, they they love it, and I think I think South Carolina and Clemson is the best rivalry in college baseball. And um, you know, every year they play that non conference series, that traveling series, that one game in. in Columbia, one game in Clemson, and one game at a neutral site like Greenville or, or Charleston. Um, I'm heading down there next weekend for that series, in fact, and, and really looking forward to it because because it's passionate. You know, the the fans don't like each other, the players <laughs> the players don't like each other. We don't see a lot of that at the college baseball level, but there's there's been genuine animosity between the the players on the field and those two programs the last uh, five years or so. So well, that's South, South Carolina has been this sort of club, right, or team that that has had. Not has not necessarily produced um, great major league prospects, but has had very strong college teams for uh, for, for a while. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, the the Gamecocks um, have been one of the more consistent teams of the last twenty years or fifteen years, anyway, uh, under Ray Tanner and now Chad Holbrook. Um, you know, they they win forty games every single year. You know, they're like Florida State now, where they just are they're a machine. Um, so, you know, they you're right. I mean, they their their pro track record isn't as good in in, in that state in general in that program. Um, but uh, you know, they're 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 getting there. I mean, I feel like it's not a state that's going to be regarded as a talent hotbed, but um, but they they do know how to, to build winning baseball programs down there. Well, yeah. Well, I, the the guy who comes to mind for me, and this is, uh, and I will say immediately that I'm entirely naive, so, or I'm generally naive so far as college baseball is concerned. But I know that South Carolina produced Michael Roth, who mm-hmm. was just like a, a a beast at South Carolina, even though he he didn't really possess anything in the way of plus tools and is not necessarily going – I think he's in the Angels system now, is sort of a tweener in terms of the fact that he's probably not going to be a great 
major league starter, but doesn't and also doesn't necessarily have like the the ceiling in terms of stuff. But he was just he was great at South Carolina. Yeah, you know he was, and it's a it's like the quintessential college baseball success story of a guy that um, you know came to South Carolina as really more of a first baseman than a pitcher, and then I think his sophomore year. Um, he, he was, you know, when they got to Omaha, he was kind of a situational left-on-left only guy for basically the entire season until they got to the College World Series. They fell into the loser's bracket, and they needed somebody um, to, to to fill in against the, uh, you know, I think it was Clemson. It was a very left-handed leaning lineup, and so they threw Michael Roth out there, and he shut him down for nine innings, you know, like something like two hits, um, and then he came back on short rest and dominated again, and, you know, in the next year, he's a first-team All-American, and it's, you know, it's just this funky left-hander with a little, you know, very his arm slot a little bit. He'll work in the mid '80s, and um, you know, pretty good changeup. Not a great breaking ball, but knew how to spot it and just know how to pitch. And unflappable, not afraid of the big stage. And you know, he's going to leave. He left college as, as one of the great pitchers in the history of the College World Series. He was there three years in a row and pitched great three years in a row. And uh, and hey, he reached the big leagues his first. You know, first season there with the Angels, he got there in a hurry, and I know he's. You're right, he's not going to be an impact big leaguer in, in all likelihood, but um, you know, it, it's hard to bet against the makeup. I mean, you know, those guys, you always give them at least a chance to stick around a little bit. So, so I, um, I want to do something. I wanna, I'm going to focus on you for a second, if you don't mind. I, I know that. Uh, well, I've had Ben Battler on a couple times, um, one of your colleagues, and he, uh, um, he's always very. Uh, deferentially doesn't want to talk about himself but I'm always interested in how guys get to the point where I mean because you you it's clear from your writing it's clear just from the first uh eight minutes of our conversation here they have you have a great sort of base of knowledge and I'm I'm definitely interested I I hope our listeners are interested in in how you get there and so I'm curious is that where, where are you from and how did you sort of develop I guess at first you know this sort of you're interested in baseball, and then beyond that, you're interested in in, in college baseball. Because, I, and I should say this, if I haven't already, your coverage of the, of, of the college game is is excellent. I appreciate that, Carson. I do, and and you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, where I grew up was not a college baseball hotbed. I grew up in Central Massachusetts, um, and my only real exposure to the game um, was going to the Cape Cod League in the summertime, and you know, watching Jason Veritex and No Mars and those guys who uh, eventually would. Of course, going to play for the Red Sox, but um, you know you remember some of those things, some of those games growing up when you see those those guys go through. But um, you know, I, I think uh, for me, um, you know, I remember some of those teams in the '90s, the Georgia Techs and Florida States, and um, some of those really good players. I mean, I, I was always interested in college baseball, but I really didn't start following it uh, until I got to, to school down at the University of North Carolina. And I think just being around it, you know. Um, a quality program like that, and they hadn't really taken off yet when I was there. Um, you know, they were still a, a good program that had not gotten over the hump, and uh, it was still fun to be be around it. You know, and um, you know when I when I when I finished up in North Carolina and I started working at Baseball America, I still I, I liked college baseball. I wouldn't consider myself a junkie yet, um, but being around that office with all those people who are so passionate about the game, and and in particular the college game, there are several people. At BA, who really care about it, uh, and that's contagious. Yeah, well, that's that's always been my uh, uh, my sense of it too. Is um, I've had conversations with you know with uh, as many of the guys who work in that office as I can, and it, it really is a sense that uh, it you know more than anything, there's just a, a real enthusiasm for the game at all levels. Actually, you know, because you pick up a copy of Baseball America, and there is treatment of all levels. 
And, uh, and I, I think it's the same, well, especially this time of year. And that's what, that's especially why I want to talk to you is because the professional game really hasn't gotten going yet. And so right now, I mean, this past week we had, or the past weekend, we had the first weekend of college baseball. And this is kind of an interesting time of year, right? Because, um, if you want to see live baseball, college baseball is it. And what's cool about it is that you're going to see, you know, especially you're watching, uh, you know, Friday night games, you're going to see guys who are going to be playing in the majors at some point. You don't know precisely who, but you, you're guessing that, you know, if you pick the right game with, uh, you know, two sort of frontline starters, you're, you're probably seeing someone who's going to pitch in the majors someday. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's really fun when you see those guys that, you know, you, you saw as freshmen the first weekend of the, of the season, you know, like Jackie Bradley Jr. I remember, you know, in South Carolina when he was a freshman and never, nobody ever really heard of that guy. I and mean, he wasn't a, a heralded recruit there. He kind of slipped between the cracks. He's kind of an undersized outfielder. Um, and you know, the first time you see him in college as a freshman, and, and I'm sitting next to a couple of scouting directors and they're thinking, they're looking at their area scouts like, how do we miss this guy? You know, and, and then, you know, now he's, he's, he's reached the big leagues already and he's, you know, he's, he's going to be a pretty darn good player, I think, in the big leagues. But, um, that's the fun part for me is when you, you really get to discover a player, um, you know, and see him for the first time. And yeah, some of these guys you see him in high school and, you know, you, you can get exposure to these guys, but sometimes when you see a player in college against better competition, you know, you can see the light kind of click on for a guy and, um, that that part of it is, I think, a lot of fun. Now that's interesting. You mentioned that how you know someone like Jackie Bradley, who you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, appears to have s- some tools. You know, and and uh, I certainly uh, you know um, his, the the scattering reports are very positive. Um, and I would actually say that the the projections, uh, whether you're looking at Steamer, Zips, or whatever we host at, at the site, are actually even maybe even in more positive. Um, especially in, in light of the fact you, – you might not think they were given the fact that he didn't necessarily have a great uh, – especially debut in the majors last year. They, they are still quite positive despite that fact. It, but you say like, oh, how did we miss this guy? I'm curious. Is there sort of – for you, is there a type of player um, who might not get picked up at the high school level by scouts but then slips through? And, and I'll sort of tag tag that question with this. Is maybe talk about a player like George Springer, who appears by, for all intents and purposes, to have crazy tools, uh, and yet, you know, he slipped through to the University of Connecticut and, uh, you know, ended up being a college draft pick, despite the fact that he seems like the exact sort of guy that would get picked up in high school. Yeah, and I remember George Springer out of high school. Um, I was doing the Northeast for the, for our draft coverage back then, and, um, you know, he was, uh, he was on the radar. I mean, people, that was a guy that people didn't know about, but he was raw. I mean, you know, he's still, he's still in some ways needs some refinement, as you know. I mean, the swing and miss thing is, is a real issue with him, but, um, he was really raw out of high school. I mean, people knew that he had tools. I mean, they said he was one of those guys that scouts knew about and, and were content to let him go to, to college and see what he could do. I mean, it kind of like, you know, kind of like Steven Strasburg. I mean, people say, well, how does Steven Strasburg go undrafted out of high school? Well, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't that good out of high school. He was overweight. He didn't have a very good work ethic. Um, you know, he needed to improve his eating habits, his attitude, and, and his stuff hadn't really jumped up yet either. And so, 
Um, people knew that he had a big body and there was some ability there, but they said, well, you know, let's see what happens at San Diego State. Maybe in three years we'll come back and he'll be a guy. And it turned out that, you know, going undrafted really motivated him and, uh, he went to, to school and they did a great job developing him and he, he did lose a bunch of weight and he worked really hard and his stuff did jump up his freshman year, in fact. Uh, it's another one of those guys I remember seeing him in a midweek game in San Diego when he was a freshman and he was coming out of the bullpen and it's like, holy smokes, who is this guy? I mean, it's just like, Towering presence on the mound with a huge fastball, and you, and you knew you knew it was special. But a year earlier, he wasn't special. You know, it just it just the light just clicked on for him. So, um, you know, I, I do think that uh, uh, in some cases, it's just a matter of players need that that time in college to mature physically and emotionally. Uh, and, and there are some cases with guys like Jackie Bradley Jr. Maybe um, where you know he he probably wasn't ready physically either, but he also played for for a, a smaller program I think in Tennessee if I recall. Um, you know some of those backwoods kids you know in 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 the South in particular um, they can slip through the cracks or, or you know I feel like in the Northeast everybody knows everybody. You know there's not as as much talent up there's not much land to cover either uh in california everybody gets scouted uh but sometimes in those more rural areas of texas or or the south you'll you'll see a guy kind of kind of slip through the cracks a little bit now actually what uh, this is sort of interesting it kind of dovetails uh nicely with with a couple of um topics we've already invoked here a player like tommy la stella right Mm -hmm. so he's interesting right because we're talking about here maybe some northern players and and how that could be sort of curious. Of course, George Springer was a Connecticut guy, and uh, maybe has tools, but maybe is, is robbed because as a Connecticut as a Connecticut prospect, he doesn't get the reps that someone in the, from the South might. Um, and then we we have Tommy Estella, who actually played that Coastal Carolina uh, program, right? And yeah. you talk about a guy who doesn't really have a lot of tools, but maybe has, but but is heavy on skills, you know, baseball specific skills. I'm curious, like, you know, I mean, Tommy Lasella, if you want to talk about him specifically or talk about him as a type, um, because he looks like, you know, he could actually be a pretty successful major leaguer just based on, again, just based on the skills. You know, and that's, that's a good example of a player who doesn't have big tools, but he does have the hit tool. And sometimes that's another, another player that, uh, a, a profile that I feel like can get, uh, underdrafted sometimes that college guy that you know has really good makeup and, and good um, baseball skills you know can hit situationally and make the routine play and all that stuff but none of the tools jump off the page at you but he can hit you know we all know the bat uh, is a carrying tool and and that's a guy that certainly has hit more than anybody ever thought he would but he did hit in in you know in college too um, and yeah I never thought he was a prospect I'll be honest I mean that's one that I, I certainly missed on too I mean I thought he was a really nice college player. Um, but his his success has has caught me by surprise, and I know I'm not the only one. Uh, I, I think players like that, you know, I mean, um, you know, Tony Renda comes to mind from the University of California, and that guy, um, you know, he performed enough in college, and and uh, um, for whatever reason, he you know he was pretty well appreciated out there on the West Coast, and and he got drafted, I think, the second round of the Nationals. But that's a guy that's kind of in that mold. Um, you know, Ross Kivett now at Kansas State, he was a tenth round pick last year, even though he was a Big Twelve Player of the Year. He's a performer. Um, you know the, the tools are kind of fringy, but he does hit. That tool is is that's probably you know a, a above average tool for him. And um, he went to the Cape Cod League and had a great summer. And, and scouts were, were kind of taking a second look at him, like, hey, you know, this guy's pretty good. And I bet you, as a senior, he'll he'll get drafted uh, considerably higher than than the tenth round. So um, you know, those are the kind of guys that that I think we're talking about here. 
Well, that's actually – I, I want to sort of get to this too, uh, looking at college players now in light of what, how they, what they might mean in terms of major leaguers. You mentioned – well, you know, we sort of talk about uh, – we talk about uh, Tony Lastello, who's a guy who's kind of beyond that. Uh, and you mentioned Tony Renda. Is that right? Tony Renda? Right. Who's yep. in the – what system is he in now? He's in the national system, and I think he's – uh, he was in the 10 to 12 range on their, on their top prospects list. So, I mean, he's undersized, five foot nine. Um, you know, a guy that he only has one tool that you could call above average, and that's the bat. Um, but he's a second baseman, just like all these guys were talking about. And, uh, you know, the, and the makeup makes it all play up. Right, yeah. And, and then, now, in, in the third guy you mentioned was Ross, was Ross Kivett, and he's at, uh, at Kansas State. Kansas State right now, and he, he sort of fits this mold as well. Absolutely, yeah. He's in that same kind of class. I mean, it, I mean, we were talking about second baseman, I guess. I'm sure there's other other kinds of players who, who uh, you know, the just look at the Cardinals roster. You know, I mean, well, that's exactly <laughs> what when, when you're talking about these players. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Matt Carpenter, yes. Alan Craig. Not that Alan Craig can necessarily play second, but it, he has that same sort of thing where where the the organization is saying it, you know, says, okay, well, you clearly have the bat. We'll just find a place for you. That's it, exactly. And, and, you know, John Jay, I mean, some of these guys that were not really sexy tools prospects, um, but have, have good makeup and good baseball instincts. And I, I credit the Cardinals for, for building their team around those kind of guys. I mean, I think that took guts because it's easy to be seduced by the big tools and, and guys that, that have tools but don't have playability, you know? I mean, it's, uh, anyone can, can look at a guy that can run a, a 6'5", 60 and, you know, put on a show in BP and say, well, he's a prospect. Uh, I think it takes a little bit, I think it's harder to scout a guy that maybe puts up good numbers without, uh, you know, he's a below average runner, he doesn't have much of an arm and say, this guy's gonna be a big leaguer. Uh, I, that's why I'm so impressed with what the Cardinals have done. Now you recently did, um, uh, I wanna get to some current college players. Um, and especially since we're recording this on Thursday, my guess is this is going to go up on a Friday. And Friday's Friday's a big day in college baseball. Um, and Indeed. The, you, know, you get the the big pitchers come out usually. Um, and if if nothing else, it marks the you know the beginning of a weekend series. Um, you you recently did uh, a tools piece. So you um, I, don't, I don't know if it was you or if it was the whole BA staff, um, but looking to scouts to find out the best college tools. Um, I'm a guy who likes to I, – I really like – and I had a love affair with Rodon, Carlos Rodon at NC State for this reason last year. I like to make uh, gifts of particularly excellent pitches, right? Mm. And Rodon is like uh, – I mean he's a, go, you know, he's a go-to for this because basically anytime he throws a slider, someone's going to look foolish uh, trying <laughs> to hit it. I'm curious from this perspective, are there other pitchers around in the college game right now I'm not just saying they have to have the exact level of Rodon in his slider because, you know, that could be something that only comes around every couple of years, every five, ten years, I don't know. But are, are there pitchers if, – if someone listening to this right now wants to seek out a college pitcher who's going to have stuff where – you know, it's that sort of stuff where you see and it, you feel it like inside. It's almost like a – it's like a religious experience. Are there any <laughs> other Are there any other players who are offering that right now? 
I think the guy that, that comes closest is, is Jeff Hoffman at East Carolina. You know, I mean, it's uh, he looks like you draw him up. He's that big, uh, lanky right hander. He's filled out. I mean, he's gotten a lot stronger since he's been at East Carolina. But um, you know, it's 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 ninety four ninety seven. We had a guy there last week at his season debut, and it was ninety four ninety seven, which is what he's he's kind of been since the Cape League and since his sophomore year. Um, but the curveball is, you know, we're talking about a power kind of. 84, 85 mile an hour curveball, maybe more than that, uh, and it's 12 to 6 and, and sharp and it's late and it's just a really good pitch and he'll throw a slider and a, and a change up too. He's got four pitches and they're all distinct, but the curveball is what I'm most intrigued by. You know, I mean, I feel like so many pitchers are going, uh, away from the true curveball more toward the slider. Um, I can really appreciate a good hard downer curveball, you know, like, like a, like a Lucas Giolito has for the Nationals. Uh, Hoffman to me is, is, He's got a package that reminds me of Giolito's. I mean, he's not as nearly as as uh, polished at a young age like Giolito was at a high school. Um, you know, Hoffman was one of those Northeast guys. He's from the state of New York, and it took him some time to to kind of harness his ability and for his stuff to to take that jump up. Uh, but it did in college, and uh, and he's got a chance to be pretty darn special right now. If if you're drafting after the first weekend of action. Um, just if it was the first time you'd ever seen those players, you would say, well, Hoffman's the guy. I mean, I saw Radon's opener against Canisius. He got beat. His command wasn't very sharp and his, you know, you know, his stuff was not as electric as, as it has been and as it will be. Um, but, uh, you know, Radon is the guy in this draft, but Hoffman, I think he's the next guy. Oh, yeah. So this is interesting. So when did, when did, when did this happen for Hoffman? Because that's sort of a thing that interested me. I mean, obviously he, he made it to college. Uh, I don't know if he got drafted at high school, but obviously if he did, it wasn't, he wasn't given a package that appealed to him enough, um, but now he's uh, but now he's like all on the radar. Um, you're mentioning that he had an excellent performance. It looks like um, what was it? Uh, six. I mean, he, he he had six strikeouts in six and two thirds innings in his debut. It looks like is that right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the numbers, it's one of those cases where the numbers, when you look at it, um, you don't look like anything special. It was, a, it was fine, but I think he gave up three runs. I don't know if maybe one or two of them were earned. I, I don't know, but, uh, it was the stuff that was special. You know, I mean, we had scouts there saying, uh, saying that it looked Verlander-ish, you know, and, and I hate when people throw that kind of well, stuff that's around. Right, but, but, because that's always, uh, unfair, I mean, ultimately to the prospect, right? But. Exactly. But I mean, but you know, it's, it's that kind of raw package. I mean, body-wise, velocity-wise, and the curveball even has that kind of upside. And, and again, we're talking upside. We're not saying it's there now. But down the road, if you're dreaming, it's not that hard to dream on him being that kind of guy. And so when did it happen for him then? I mean, was it the Cape, Cod, was it the Cape League this summer? That was a big moment for him. I mean, he was very good there. He, he didn't pitch there a lot. The, the, the handful of outings he made were very good, and he dazzled people. But, uh, you know, his, his freshman year, he had already started to jump up pretty good. Um, I think from, from high school senior year to, to freshman year, that was the biggest jump. And then there were more incremental jumps, um, you know, going into his sophomore year um, and then, you know, into sophomore summer. And, and he's kind of sustained that progress from last summer to now. Um, but the biggest difference for him is – Getting physically stronger and, and improving the command, and he has gotten stronger. And the command, I think, is also um, you know come, and it's not all the way there yet, but um, he's come a long way from where he was. So for him, he's always been a guy where um, I don't think the numbers and the production have matched the ability. So this is a big year for him. I mean, uh, I'd like to see him put it all together. Okay, uh, a question or a comment, and then a question. The the comment is that. 
Um, if anyone makes their way to Jeff Hoffman's Wikipedia page, I don't know why this is, but for some reason, uh, whoever has written it has translated um, the, his scatter report has presented it not only with miles per hour, but also with kilometers per hour. So any <laughs> any, any Canadian readers uh, who are more comfortable with the metric system uh, will know that his, uh, for example, his fastball, uh, when he was uh, at least dra- taken by, you know, matriculated to East Carolina, it was at one about 132 kilometers per hour. So that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's the comment. Um, the question is, uh, where at this point, and I'm not going to hold you to it, but if you were to give a sort of estimate of where Hoffman's looking like, he'll he'll go in in the draft in 2014. Where are you thinking? Uh, well, right now I think he's probably, you know, he's probably a certainly top five pick. Um, and, and he might be, like I said, I think he might be the number two guy after Radon. I mean, there's, you know, there's Tyler Kolick, the, the flamethrowing high school right-hander from Texas, and there's Trey Turner, uh, at NC State, who's that live-bodied, uh, ultra-fast shortstop who can, you know, I think he's special. I think he's electric. Just so much fun to watch, uh, because it's top of the chart speed and he knows how to use it. And he also and seems it, to have, and we'll talk about Turner, that's fine with me, and it, this is really cool because again, you're like right there. You have yeah. You have Rodon, and you also have Turner right there at NC State. I mean, Turner also has baseball skills too. Yeah, he does exactly, and he's got baseball savvy that's so rare. I mean, uh, the thing that that strikes that that strikes me about Turner, and you know, this is a story that I probably tell too much because I love it. But uh, in the College World Series last year, um, you know, when they they lost to UCLA, and he he made some observation about um, the way that uh, the UCLA pitcher was was attacking them, and you know, it was such a nuanced comment that somebody you know, ten minutes later asked. John Savage, UCLA's coach, about it, um, and, and said, "You know, Turner just said this." And, and, and Savage actually stopped and said, "He said that, really? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a really incredibly uh, advanced uh, observation for a college player." And you know, John Savage is, is one of the smartest baseball guys I know, and so he was blown away by that level of insight. And and you know, I think that. That just shows you what Trey Turner is all about. I mean, he's a smart, savvy kid, and he, he has so much fun playing the game. It's it's contagious. It's really uh, he's 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 a great player. And there's and there's bat speed there too. I mean, you know, he, he's he knows how to use his speed. He does keep the ball on the ground pretty well, and he can really bunt and um, you know beat out infield hits. But but there is bat speed. I mean, I think he's a guy that will hit some some home runs. Um, you know, down the road, he, he already hits some now, um, and he'll drive the gaps and just be a pretty complete player. And he can. He he can dazzle a shortstop too. I mean, that part is, is still a work in progress. But boy, I saw him make a play this weekend on a ball up the middle that I didn't think he had any chance to get to, and he fielded cleanly and did a fluid little spin move and threw, threw a strike to first base for the out. And, and it was it was as good a play as you'll see a shortstop make. So wait, so if you had your your druthers right now, and I don't know how often you get your druthers, but if you had them right now, if you had one college team you could watch uh, on any given day, is it is it NC State or is it a different team? Oh, it's NC State, and it's it's an easy call for me, especially if Verdon's pitching. If it's a Friday, I'm, I'm definitely taking NC State. But um, you know, if, if it's a different day, you know, maybe you got some competition from uh, you know Virginia, maybe. I mean, I think Virginia's incredibly exciting. Uh, this is an ACC year for me. I mean, this is the best the ACC has ever been, in my opinion, and since I've been covering college baseball. And you know, it's funny. It's 34 years we've had our preseason rankings, uh, and this is only the fourth time we've had an ACC team preseason number one. Um, and that's you know last year with North Carolina, and then two years, uh, you know, about a, over a decade ago with Georgia Tech, and they underachieved both times. But um, you know, let's see what Virginia can do. That team is loaded from top to bottom. 
Well, so so it's interesting you mentioned Virginia. Virginia's uh, was it the? I think they were uh, first overall in in Baseball America's top twenty five rankings. They preserved that ranking despite uh, dropping uh, dropping a game o- over the first weekend. And that leads me to this question, and this is something that maybe our you know Fangraphs uh, has a. I mean, I'll just I'll say I'm not afraid to say it. we have a nerdy readership. No. Yeah, we do. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but you might be hard for you to believe. <laughs> I know you think of us as hunky, uh, but no, 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 some nerds. But in terms no, of no like, nerds read Baseball America, though. I can say that. <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of methodology, I guess I, I guess I'm curious, especially at this point of the season, when when BA is producing these rankings, is it what is the balance in terms of a sort of what you consider true talent? Uh, for that for that team, B performance, and then C or maybe you know B with a you know bullet bullet point uh, uh, performance uh, sort of adjusted for competition. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's more of an art than a science, and I hate that to use that cliche, but um, it, it's you know I do my first my starting point when we when you sit down in the top twenty five rankings is I I do actually look at all the rosters and grade them out. Uh, using the 2080 scale, cause we love the 2080 scale, yeah. and, and I grade them out in, you know, hitting and defense and power and starting pushing bullpen, uh, whatever, and, and average them all out. And so that's just my starting point. Um, you know, and, and the rankings, of course, differ from that, uh, cause there's a, there's a gut feel element and you have to make adjustments for, you know, which categories are more important. I mean, nowadays in college baseball, you don't really have to have power to win. I mean, look at UCLA last year. They hit 250 as a team. They had no power and they won the national championship because they could pitch and defend. Um, and in this era of college baseball, that, that's a winning formula. So, you know, if, if a team has 70 power, uh, you know, it's just not as important. <laughs> um, it's, it's a nice bonus, but, um, you know, so there, there are different things that you have to weigh. And certainly, you know, teams that have gone deep into the postseason before and, um, and, you know, have that kind of experience, I think that does matter. You know, in college baseball in particular, um, when you're dealing with, with kids that are 18 to 21 years old, they're still developing. Um, I think having been there before, it really gives you an advantage. Um, even more so than, than probably at the, at the pro level. Um, so, you know, that that matters also. I mean, not that we're going to disqualify a team that hasn't been to Omaha from being high in the rankings, but um, that that is a factor. And, and what conference you play, what competition level, what what your talent level is, it, it all kind of factors into the mix for us. But um, you know, it's it's uh, it's I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but that that's how we do it. No, that's fine. I mean, no, I I'm you know I'm fine with it. It it, it, it seems like uh, especially because you have. It, it, I, I accept the, the art versus science argument because you have multiple conferences. Um, I mean, I guess uh, I I don't think there is at least not publicly available. There's not like I'm sure uh, you're, you're familiar with maybe with Ken Palm. You know Ken Palm yeah. always uh, college basketball rankings. Uh, I don't know if there's a publicly available version of that for baseball. No, uh, there there's not really. I mean, there's. Um, you know, there, there are different statistical models, I guess, for evaluating baseball teams. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got the RPI and you've got the ISR rankings at Boyd's World, but, um, there's not really a, a Ken Palm kind of a, of, a, of an equivalent. Um, this is the last thing I'll ask because you've already, uh, you've already more than fulfilled your obligations here, but, um, and I wasn't going to ask you about this, but it just, this just happened today, I think. And that, that's, this is the question of, um, the Phyllis situation that arose, and yeah. I think you actually broke the story. 
I did, yeah. Yeah, and so um, so the, uh, I'll I'll give the moron's explanation, and you can give the more the more nuanced one. The way I understand it, though, is that um, uh, by NCAA rules, uh, baseball players, uh, college baseball baseball players, as opposed to uh, basketball or football players, they're not allowed representation. Generally speaking, uh, they they utilize it though. It's sort of uh, accepted. Uh, but what happened was the Phillies, they didn't sign uh, either their fifth or sixth-round picks from last year. Ben Wetzler was a fifth-round pick. Uh, sixth-round pick was Jason Monda. They didn't sign either of them, and they just outed them to the NCAA, or they announced that these guys had used res- representation. Um, it's kind of a dirty move. So that's the moron's explanation. Uh, where, uh, you can explain the myriad ways in which I misrepresented your argument. No, that that is pretty much what happened. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, a pure and simple case. I think of uh, vindictive behavior. You know, I don't know what else the Phillies had to gain from this, um, and it is pretty almost unprecedented. You know, you really have to go back to AJ Hinch. I think in 1992 to find a case where wait, AJ um, Hinch, who was the Diamondbacks coach. It's the very one. Yeah, you know, okay. When, when he right. was coming out in 1992, he was turned in by the White Sox for having um, an agent after you know negotiations broke down there, and, and uh, it hasn't really happened since then. You know, there have been cases where maybe a you know a, uh, an executive like uh, Paul Beeston with the Blue Jays a few years back with James Paxton uh, made a, made a comment in the media about about negotiating with Boris, and that has gotten uh, you know the player into trouble. You might see that once in a while, not often. Uh, but, you know, a, a team actually going out of its way to talk to the NCAA and get a player in trouble, you just don't see it because all these guys have agents. That's how it works in baseball. I mean, you're, you know, you're, the way that the thing is structured where you've got a, a draft that happens while the players are still eligible and, you know, they retain eligibility after the draft if they don't sign. And in many cases, they're still playing, um, while they're drafted. And that was the case with Wetzler. You know, he was drafted in June. And Oregon State went to the College World Series, so he was still playing for several weeks after the draft. And you know, maybe by the time he got to Omaha, he realized, hey, this is this is fun. You know, I want to come back and, and try uh-huh. to win the championship again next year, or I want to get my degree. Whatever the case was, players change their minds, you know. And and when that happens, I don't blame a big league team for getting ticked off about it. Um, it happens every year, and and the big league teams will complain about it and grumble and say, ah, oh, this guy, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to play. You know, that's what we hear all the time from scouts. Uh-huh. Um, but then when push comes to shove and the NCAA comes calling and says, hey, was there an infraction here? The club always says, no, there's no infraction, and they lie, they lie to them. They lie to the, the NCAA because there's there's nothing in it for them to get these players in trouble. You know, I mean, there's they want to preserve good relations with with the agents, with the players, with the coaches. Um, you know, what do they care if the NCAA, you know, gets to pin another, you know, uh, a body on the wall or whatever? I mean, they don't they don't care. And so, um, what the Phillies did it was it was very very unusual, and it's hard to fathom why they did it. So there are like multiple layers of misbehavior here, right? Because the Phillies is the most flagrant. Because it happens so infrequently that a, that a team will turn in player, let alone multiple players, it seems like. Um, but the NCAA, now, the, I mean, this will shock many of our listeners to learn that the NCAA has a strange <laughs> policy, um, a policy that, that hurts a, an entire g- group of uh, workers, essentially, who, <laughs> who have no representation. Um, uh, but, but, but under this, the way that the law, the, the rules work right now, Baseball players, because as, as you mentioned, I think, 
baseball players, uh, college baseball players don't declare for the draft. They're just drafted. Right, exactly. And, and so, that, that, yeah, that that's makes the problem. Different from baseball and, and, and uh, bas- different from basketball and, and football. You just can't treat it the same way. But at the same time, um, despite the fact that they're collegiate athletes, that they presumably, uh, you know, have some measure of intelligence by virtue of the fact that they're on a college campus by osmosis, if nothing else, <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily understand the intricacies of draft law, whatever that is, yeah. or contract law or whatever is required to know. And, I mean, it's not shocking that they would reach out to a professional uh, to guard their interests. No, and, and you know, it's uh, – I think it's – I think it would be foolish not to. And, you know, people think now with the new draft systems, maybe you don't need an agent because there's, you know, they think they're slotting, but there's not slotting. You know, there's a recommended, um, budget for each pick. But really, what we have now is, is a finite pool of money, um, that a club can spend. And there's even more competition than ever to try to get your hands on some of that money. And, and it's, I think it's more important than ever to have, uh, a skilled, you know, experienced, um, Agent helping you through this process. And so, um, you know, anyone who negotiates a major contract like this with a multi-million dollar corporation, you'd be foolish not to have a lawyer represent your interests. Um, and, you know, I just think that the NCAA had, doesn't have a leg to stand on here. And when this went to court in 2008 with Andy Oliver at Oklahoma State, um, the, the NCAA lost. You know, they were told, hey, you can't. You can't tell this guy he's, you know, he can't have a lawyer. Um, you know, that's craziness. And so, um, the no agent rule was invalidated, but then, you know, they wound up settling out of court. And so they threw out that ruling and it went back to business as usual. But eventually this is going to get overturned and it would be behoove the NCAA, I think, to change that, um, before that happens. Like they've been talking about for years. I mean, for three or four years now that we go to the coaches convention and every year they, they say, we know baseball's different. You know, the, the, the way that everything works, these players need, uh, they need help with the process. We're going to reexamine the rules for agents and they never do anything about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of their lip service. I want action. Right. Okay. Hey, well, listen, I could ask you like a thousand more questions, but uh, you are a real person with real things to do. <laughs> so uh, we'll just uh, we'll do in the future because uh, I uh, anticipate that I will uh, uh, harass you to be on the show again. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Aaron Fit. That was great stuff. Uh, hey, I enjoyed talking to you, Carson. All right. Well, stick around for a second, uh, but for the purposes of this episode of Fangirls Audio, that has been Aaron Fit of uh, Baseball America. I'm Carson Zestuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.